Hello, welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Network. I'm Eric. And I'm Curtis. And we're here to talk about movies we saw this week with a twist! On this show, there are winners and a loser. The loser is the person with the most points. You get points in one of two ways. You can either, one, claim an opinion is fact, like Curtis is the greatest person of all time. Or, you can say something subjective and either take the point... Like, you know, Curtis is my favorite person because his face is great. Or you can have 60 seconds to support the reason you formed your opinion using objective details, avoiding the buzzer. So, example, just to clarify for people, Jesse Plemons, we talked about Game Night. He's my favorite part of Game Night because of his dry delivery of jokes, the backstory written for his character related to his ex-wife, and I personally couldn't stop laughing at how can that possibly be profitable for (laughs) Frito-Lay? Like, you're saying it's a fact that I laughed at that, so that's the kind of thing. Now, I'd like to give our first special announcement for this episode, which is who's losing? It's me. I uh, totaled up our number of episodes, and I had to give or take a few things, because we didn't have a concrete set of rules or guidelines. So, Mm -hmm. What we ended up with was me kind of deciding there are some points where we should have buzzed. So any time that I felt like we maybe didn't need to buzz someone, I counted it anyways, hoping that that would kind of meet it in the foreground. So over the course of all seven prior episodes, our point totals are Samia, our only guest star, at four points. Oh, God. Four points. Curtis at 23 points. Oh, that's a lot of points. And myself at 43 points. I don't know what I was doing for episodes 2, 3, and 4. Well, I know when we talked about The Mask of Zorro, I buzzed myself several times in a row. So that point could have been lower. But goodness gracious. Uh, Each of those scores is about 20 points apart. Yeah. Yeah, so dang. Well, it's funny. You'll notice that we're getting lower and lower with the point totals. Yeah. And I feel like over time what it's going to become is... It's going to be a big slip up when you get a point. Yeah. And it's funny because we'll have guest stars. The stakes will still maybe be there a little bit for them where it's creeping. And if you're on here and someone is a little too excited about their own opinion, you end up. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, that's know. one of the things that I am looking forward to because uh, eventually I'd like to get my brother on the uh, show at some point because uh, he has very uh, vocal opinions on things. Ah. And he's probably going to be one of those ones who's going to slip up a good bit. So he's calling you out, Nick. Um, <laughs> now, we're here to talk about what movies we watched this week. Curtis, right. what did you watch this week? The only movie I watched this week was 12 Angry Men from 1957, directed by Sidney Lumet. It was his first directorial job, but not his first creative work. His, he did... It's his directorial debut. Yes, either, but not his you first... You better cre- cut that out. My thing. Uh, you oh. better cut that out. I'm so upset that I just said that. <laughs> okay. I'll be sure to not do that. <laughs> Either way. Uh, but it's not his first uh, creative work. He, did, he he worked in television for the longest time, and uh, that's part of the reason why they brought him on as director, because they were trying to keep the budget low. So oh. They, yeah. Dude, that is so popular in modern day. Yeah. I mean, that's like how David Fincher got his start. That's how every indie director yeah. that uh, gets into a Marvel project is getting their start. Which yeah, uh, specifically, doesn't... they were trying to keep it under $400,000. Mm. Uh, and part of the way that they had to do that was they got a, a, a fresh director and they had to curve. Uh, and uh, Henry Fonda had to take reduced pay in order to keep it under that $400,000 budget. Yeah. 
Well, so. so 12 Angry Men sounds like something you're excited to talk about. Mm-hmm. The movies that I brought today are Adventures of Tintin, Iron Man, directed by John Favreau from 2008, and The Dead Don't Die, directed by Jim Jarmusch, that came out in 2019, I want to say. Okay. I'm really excited to talk about The Dead Don't Die, but once again, it's a Jim Jarmusch movie, like Dead Man, that I've seen and you haven't, and I'm just going to be going on about it. Yeah, so. I've never seen a single Jim Jarmusch movie. I here he has a very particular way of making movies, and it's either you like him or you don't. The Dead Don't Die is a zombie movie. Yep. It is probably the most mainstream movie that he's made in terms of like audience appeal and what people go to pay, you know, popcorn money for. Okay. Adam Driver, Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton. Um, I'm sorry I don't know her name, but the actress who plays the mother in Zodiac of Jake Gyllenhaal's... Okay, I don't remember her. Anyways, but... she's she's great. I hate that I don't know her name off the top of my head, but okay. stars with some other up-and-coming actors and, and a thing. There's, there's a pretty broad ensemble cast uh, that are just in this very small town. And immediately, the appeal of... The fantasy of the zombie apocalypse is really, really, really palpable. Okay. Um, If you look at the front cover of a Walking Dead comic, that style, I feel like I get that style visually more out of this movie than I have out of the show. Okay. The concept is exactly what you would expect. Uh, There is a lens of a third-party observer just looking in on something happening in this small rural community, which is Tom Waits. Mm -hmm. He's homeless on purpose, and he's just like a wanderer who lives in the woods. Okay. And it opens with him having been accused of stealing one of a racist farmer's chickens. That racist farmer is played by Steve Buscemi. And the... The idea of Steve Buscemi playing some yes. like a racist farmer is just like for some reason innately funny to me. <laughs> I don't know why. And here's a problem that people immediately have with it. When I s- describe certain things to you, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a certain amount of excitement that will ping in your brain and it sets off expectations. Yeah. Uh, when you see Dry Wit and the Dead Don't Die, Shaun of the Dead comes to mind. Um, but you know, that's not necessarily dry wit, but Jim Jarmusch has his own style. So you think of a certain energy and you think of a certain pace. And the thing is, this is a lot more like dead man. Okay. It's, it never picks up pace. It is very observational. You're, you're watching something happen almost without the camera being pressed in to show you the intensity of someone trying to survive or no camera shaking or anything like that. It's very just flatline still imagery and calm. Well, for example, I'll tell you the thing that I picked up on early in the movie. Mm -hmm. They start listening to a song in the radio called the dead don't die. And Adam driver goes, it's the dead don't die. Bill Murray is like, why is this so familiar to me? Cause it's the theme song. And for a second, you're like, to what? The theme song to what? And a part of me knew immediately, oh, it's th- to the movie. Right. Uh... And then later, Bill Murray's in the middle of a casual conversation with him in character. They never break character. Okay? Okay. They're just talking, and he says, you know, I could have retired two years ago. And Adam Driver says, yeah, why didn't you? 
Like, as if he's talking to him like a cop. I could have retired two years ago. Yeah, why didn't you? Bill Murray responds, what are we, ad-libbing? And then it gets, I'm not going to say how it gets more direct later on. It doesn't really unfold into anything big. It's just there. Okay. It's just there, like, in the moments where the characters are sitting there. They're just talking so casually, they just start talking about the movie they're in. And then there's Tilda Swinton. Uh, Also, Zelda. It's some play on exactly her name. Mm. Uh, Now, she is a Scottish operator of the morgue fascinated with Japanese culture who uses a samurai sword to take people out. (laughs) She doesn't fit into the community. Everyone's whispering about her. It's a small town, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just to the point where you would be like, what is happening? Half the people I believe listening to it would think, what is happening? And shut it off at a certain point. Right. So there's an appeal to the color purple. Okay. They're, they explain what's going on. There's polar fracking and the earth is knocked off its axis. All you see visually is one day everyone talks about how it's late, it's late, it's late, but it's still daylight. What's going on? The next day, it's only 5 p.m. It's nighttime. Yeah. The moon during the night mm-hmm. glows purple. Okay. And that's when a couple of characters rise from the grave. Adam Driver is like fully ready. The response of, there are these bodies. What do you think it is? Everyone keeps going, was it a rabbit animal? Was it animals? And Adam Driver's like, I think it's zombies. <laughs> and that's it. Okay. They, they just accept what it is. And then they gradually get proof that it exists, but it's almost like they didn't need it. And Bill Murray's just like, okay, well... I'm on board then. And, you know, it's like there there are gory moments. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, when you kill a zombie in this movie, they use dust. Okay. Like, they're hot. They're filled with... They're decayed. Yeah. So, it's not overly gory. It's not indulgent in violence in that way. Okay. Although Adam Driver does take this awesome sort of... <laughs> still, his tool that he uses to chop off zombie heads. You know, you gotta kill the head. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Can I ask a question? Like, what shade of purple would you a very violet like color out of space kind of pink yeah like like, would you say lavender no lavender is more blue okay and purple it's why i I don't know where i heard this from but like something about the lavender or or at least like the smell of lavender helps with the sleep so like it's that's interesting it's so it's 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 the idea of the dead rising from sleep which is what brought that idea to my head but if it's not lavender then interesting well maybe i don't know that's that's that is a really interesting idea and Mm -hmm. because that because that's the important thing of this movie is is the details Mm mm-hmm uh, now, there's a difference between the zombies in this movie and other zombies. They are the slow-walking zombies that you feel like are easy to defend against, and yet when they become in and as a hundred of them, mm. you can feel the weight of their threat. They can talk. They have two motivations, feed on flesh, and they all have one thing they did in their life that mm. drives them. So, for example, for some of them, they keep repeating coffee, and they gravitate directly towards a coffee house from their grave. For some people, it's, I need to get into the bank. Like, they get in to get their money. For some people, it's, like, clothes or whatever. Mm. So, Samia and I were joking about how we would just want to go home and sleep. And (laughs) so, so it's kind of counterintuitive to the whole thing. It's just, so there's a bare thread of what's left. Mm -hmm. And so, it feels like the approach to the zombies is the same approach as the direction. Okay, like, there's a goal to tell a story, but then there's just an instinct on how it's supposed to work. 
It, this almost kind of sounds like a a like dry comedic version of like George A. Romero's zombie movie because I'm, I'm, I'm it is because the, the way you're describing it, it it's, so it's, Romero. it's reminding me a lot of Dawn of the Dead. It, it's so George Romero. Okay, but here's the thing. Uh, so there are kids locked up in a juvenile detention center. You think that's going to be a point? Okay. They live. They, they, everyone else dies. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are characters who hole up inside of a warehouse and they think they have a plan. And you think that's going to be a factor. They have all these tools. You know, they die. Uh, you have characters who are really scared about they die. You have about five to seven different character oriented stories and they all end with they die. They just get the zombies take over. Okay. And so. What I feel like some people see that as is, well, then what's the point of all this? But what I see it as is life closing off and being consumed and mm. till a central point. So basically, if you can't get on board with Bill Murray and Adam Driver's characters, mm-hmm. then all the things that you like are going to be dispassionately thrown away. Okay. You know, and it's just this idea of some movies that are so tired you know, the characters are slow. They take their time. Bill Murray talks about how he's, you know, was ready to retire. He doesn't bother to arrest someone doing something. He doesn't bother to warn the farmer who he thinks is like a piece of shit. Uh, when there are zombies. And Adam Driver's like, well, it's our duty. What are we going to do? And he's like, we'll tell the other officer at the office. We'll tell her to tell him. I'm like, oh, good. You know, it's, they just, they don't get excited. They don't get bothered. They are all just calm. Okay. So in a weird way, it's like a comforting, warm trip through the zombie apocalypse with the staples that you want. So in in a nutshell, I just wanted to say that I'm starting to really like Jim Jarmusch. And it's time for me, I think, to revisit some movies that I previously didn't like. Mm -hmm. Because as a director, there's something so at peace with the world about his vibe and what he puts into his movies. And I think I need that right now. Okay. Personally. And that's, that's it. That's the dead don't die. So. So another one that I watched that I think is good. Cause you know, we both seen this a hundred times. So you'll be able to speak to it. I'm just going to go straight into talking about Iron Man. Okay. Because uh, you brought up, how your director was someone who was just like working in television for a while and was given a break. Yes. Now, John Favreau was not nobody. He had made Elf. He had made a couple of things. He Nothing high profile enough to get him any kind of individual yeah, he popularity. Wasn't, yeah, he wasn't known for action as far as I'm aware. There was something that they took a chance. He yeah. had a pitch. Robert Downey Jr. was a the person they had in mind. So here's the thing. Okay. We're going to talk about Iron Man. Yes. But we're not going to talk about whether or not Robert Downey Jr. was good. It does not matter whether or not the movie was good. The reason why I want to talk about Iron Man is because when I rewatch it, I notice the creative differences in before Marvel had a complete handle on what they were doing with Disney backing them and after. There is, I don't think, a chance for another Disney movie to feature a stripper pole rising from the ground of a jet that Tony Stark owns while they're drinking sake. But uh, I'm going to be a weep here. It's pronounced sake. Sake. Okay. I'm sorry. My bad. But (laughs) I'm just saying, there's not really a chance that people will do that. And I know a lot of people say, 
oh, you could never do this again because Tony Stark is... There are people who don't understand, in my opinion, uh, character arcs. Mm -hmm. That, yes, you absolutely could do a story like Tony Stark's again because it's about him learning from flaws and... Yeah. You know, like, very inherently, like, he says himself, uh, I've become part of a system that's comfortable with zero accountability. I finally know what I have to do and I know in my heart that it's right. Those are lines directly from him. It's about a character... Yeah. You know, so that aside, the Iron Man is the last time that I know that someone intentionally wrote into a story. Mm -hmm. You thought, like capital U, Mm -hmm. thought this was a plot hole. Where he leaves and after the almost kiss scene with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow with Pepper. Mm -hmm. And he leaves to Golmira. And that whole sequence of the movie happens. And at the end of the movie, he's like, tell me you never think about that night. (laughs) <laughs> and then she calls about the one where you left me there by myself. I feel like at some point they were like, wait a minute. So the next time he sees Pepper, they're okay. Somebody pointed out that there was maybe a issue. Like a uh, when they get to the end, if they're supposed to have a big romantic kiss, it didn't feel right for some reason. And someone was like, you should have her call him out on this. That would be really funny. Oh. Um, Contrast with Age of Ultron, and even more recently, WandaVision. In Age of Ultron, you're talking about like, uh, oh, a new AI, we're going to create a system, we're going to do a thing. In Iron Man, Jarvis just exists as a tool in the background that's unexplained, and it's assumed that you'll know what he is. And the story is more focused on, well, Tony, you know, the stocks are going to drop a lot of points if you tell our industry they're going to stop making weapons, so we need you to lay low for a while and not be in the public eye so that I can meet with the board, and we're going to lock you out so that you can't function with your shares of the company so that we can... You know, like, Obadiah Stane feels like a villain at times that everyone complains about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he follows a logic pattern. You yeah. know, he, he Tony comes back, he does something unexpected. He tries to find out about what happened with the suit and Tony is blocking him out. It's not until he goes to Golmira that Obadiah knows he's targeting Golmira. So he goes back to where that was, finds out about the Iron Man suit from him because he can't find about it, out about it from Tony. Mm-hmm. Needs to power it, can't power it. And that's what ultimately leads to the climax of your movie. Like, it's very straightforward one thing leads to the other you know it's so bare bones and grounded yeah you could have made it without obadiah stain being a villain because like there there was enough conflict with tony stark for that to support a super villain yeah a super villain like like because the internal you can take the comic book out of this yeah and it would still be a movie which is bizarre yeah the story of iron man is not uh is, is, is actually not the hero. It's it's the evolution of Tony throughout the entire movie. The biggest conflict is really Tony Stark's uh, reinvention of himself. It's his internal struggle, coming to terms with what he's done and trying to make amends for it. Yeah. And it, it's the the movie is very methodical in that sense, where mm-hmm. it, it, it goes to painstaking lengths to show you everything that Tony is doing to make amends for what his company has done, what he's doing, mm-hmm. all the way up to the point where uh probably my favorite scene in the movie because you get the clearest sense of where tony's coming from is when he's taking off the iron man suit for the first time uh pepper refuses to help him out and he goes through through this whole whole uh, whole spiel about uh how she stayed by his side while he reaped the benefits of war and destruction and the the point is i shouldn't be alive i shouldn't be alive i should be dead if i'm alive there's for a reason yeah there there has to be a, a a a reason and that's the central thesis, I think, of the of the movie in general, it's uh, it sticks out to me every time. And every time I watch it, and just now talking about, it, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about mm. it. So, 
That was an interesting fact to tell so that you didn't have to say how you felt about the same. So what interests me is that even as recently as WandaVision, uh, that show is dipping back into dramatic territory. But not it's not necessarily grounded anymore, and that's fine. Yeah. I, I I don't you know, not the way that that Iron Man is grounded in reality, yeah. and so Wandavision has ties directly to Tony Stark's story in Iron Man One. Yes, in Ultron, yeah, she blames Tony Stark directly for the death of her parents, the death of her parents, and. The line in Ultron is, I waited two days for Tony Stark to kill us. Yeah. Uh, her and her brother. So, it's just seeing the way, even though you still have military operations, you contrast that with the military operations happening in Iron Man 1 and 2, mm-hmm. when they're trying to figure out his tech and turn it into a war machine. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it just, it it feels different. It feels more like it's based in a comic book world i think with uh more recently yeah and so what's interesting to me is you can go back to iron man and get an experience that feels almost night and day different yeah i mean from recent things um i will say i am always going to feel driven to go back to Tony Stark, who's a character who was able to recognize and embrace and take action to fix his flaws. Yeah. When I watch Iron Man, yeah, I feel the urge to get organized. I always feel like I'm I have direction and energy. Mm-hmm. And his affect of just whatever the problem is, we're gonna fix it. Yeah, uh, he's a very carefree. It's like he seems carefree about anything until it's important to him. But then when his perspective shifts to what may be right for him on what's important to him, mm-hmm. suddenly he's a hero. Maybe the whole point of what I wanted to say is that it's rewatchable because time changes and that movie stays what it is. So, uh, but along the lines of Adventure Scale... Mm-hmm. I wanted to hit up the adventures of Tintin. Okay. You thousands of regular listeners out there, millions in fact, know that we are fascinated with Edgar Wright. Mm, yes. And we really liked, well, you don't know this yet, but we like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Curtis takes that point too because I said we. <laughs> Basically, what I want to point out with this is that Edgar Wright helped write the screenplay with Steven Moffat. Mm-hmm. who was the showrunner for Doctor Who for a couple of series, and Sherlock. Okay. I don't know why Steven Spielberg is credited as the singular director when Peter Jackson was also a part of it, and Amblin Entertainment and Wingnut Films. Hmm. Both studios helped with you know the special effects and whatnot and like were part of the production team. Okay. Uh, but that's you know combining every kind of adventure, entertainment, everything. You know Simon Pegg and Nick Frost play the police officers uh, that Edgar Wright wrote for in the oh. screenplay. <laughs> you know, they, you're, this is a movie that is a compilation of, of Jamie Bell finally gets to be a lead. Jamie Bell is an actor that I feel like deserves to have been a lead. This is, damn it! This is how I get to ten points and plus per episode. Uh, the amount of uh, interest in doing this 
and collaboration among people who had to care about the source material is... So what I want to talk about is the comment that I heard from someone who I pointed this out on another episode, the orgy of movement, mm-hmm. on how we're it's so natural in our brains to cut and edit in our own lives. When your eyes move to something new, mm-hmm. you don't follow your eyes' movement to somewhere else. So listener, right now, look to the left without moving your head. Look to your right without moving your head. Look up, look down. Did your eye flow to the left and right and up and down, or did you snap to different shots? Uh, it snaps. Okay. So even our human eye is used to editing. Mm-hmm. And so when you create sequences in movies like Beowulf and uh, The Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey and with The Adventures of Tintin, where sequences flow with one-shot camera movements that are like impossible camera movements that change and adjust focus and digital lenses and and jumps in and out of different buildings and becomes part of a wall and moves past that wall and characters flow in and out of the screen with absolute precision and you're supposed to follow all of it mm-hmm. it's unnatural and exhausting sometimes for your eyeballs okay um because all of that detail i have to justify is longer than the attention span than we're used to sitting we're used to blinking that also creates an edit between one thing and another. Mm. You know, we're used to all these things. So it it, fe- it doesn't really mesh with the way that our eye functions. Okay. Um, that being said, you have other sequences in this that were done that feel like just ambitious sequences that would have cost a lot more money to do otherwise. Okay. So if you're just in a studio with some floor mats and a motion capture suit out and you do a sword fight with two foam sticks, you can have the choreography of a sword fight like you do in Tintin where Red Rackham and uh, the Haddock ancestor Uh uh, fight over his treasure. And the premise of this sword fight Uh is Haddock's willing to blow up his own ship so that the treasure goes to the bottom of the sea instead of going with the Red Rackham. Okay. So he lights a fire. On a gunpowder layout that he's laid all the way down below deck. Now the thing is, there are edits in this, so it's not just a continual flow of movement. But the two characters are engaging in in what motion-wise feels like a real sword fight. And the choreography of it... This is the sort of thing that we talked about with The Mask of Zorro. You don't get these long takes of stunt work and sword display. Right. You do in the adventures of Tintin. And we haven't had a sword fight that functions like that, even in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie since 2006, when uh, the um, wheel, the big wheel that Will Turner and Jack Sparrow and Norrington fight on. Um, Ever since then, if there's a sword fight in there, it's it's usually shorter than two minutes of screen time, and it's cut away to different types of of action and functioning. Um, so am I narrowing down on just swordplay with this? Probably. Is that smart? I don't know. But this is 2011, so it's 10 years old now. And it's been 10 years since we've just had that. You know, we've had some swashbuckling in, in, in Pirates of the Caribbean 5 came out in 2017. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I can't remember a single significant sword fight scene in that entire movie. That's the thing. There is kind of, there's a trident and someone who's being puppeted fighting at the end. And it, it really, that's the thing. The action is all these big moving things. And they don't think about the simplicity of sword playing gunfire. They think about big scale and, and big budget Wow, because they want to show someone something they haven't seen before. They don't want to retread the same yeah. thing. 
But you also, they don't play in that world of, okay, how do I show a sword fight? Or how do I show this in a way that I haven't seen before? Yeah. You know, because I'm using sword fighting as sort of a an example to talk about how in Tintin, they managed to do what a lot of movies, particularly at the time, were struggling to do, mm. which is to really show your action. This is yeah. three years before John Wick. Right. So this is really clear staged adventure action. And it is like not too modern day to the point that it's like it, it sort of feels like it's set in an Indiana Jones era London. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have the vibe of Indiana Jones where yep. you have Steven Spielberg as a director and you have the different vibe of like pirates and and a different era of adventure and you have them combined into this, but then you have stuff that's very for the kids and kid friendly, like with Snowy, the dog who's, you know, making his way around cows and doing Mm -hmm. some silly things. Um, So I just wanted to point out that this movie is at times straining physically on eyeballs to watch. Okay. But offers more in one package than you get over watching a couple of different movies so some people might prefer to watch different movies Mm -hmm. but you also you know you can get a lot from this and if they were to make a sequel i would be interested to see what the premise would be oh also mystery so in total you have uh tintin who is your spyglass or you know magnifying glass wielding journalist detective and you have him trying to solve a mystery that turns into two different types of adventure along the lines of Indiana Jones and a swashbuckling pirate adventure. And Mm -hmm. I can't name another movie that is that. Given the floor over, uh, I (laughs) have seen 12 Angry Men a couple of times. I also Mm -hmm. have the Criterion here. So on the Criterion disc, it comes with the original um, uh, television play, which was shot live and aired live. It was originally written by uh, Reginald Rose, for the television play, uh, starring Robert Cummings. And Henry Fonda is the one who, who was credited with the idea of bringing it to, to the uh, big screen. But the big thing that I noticed with the television play is because, and this is more of a limitation at, at the time because it was broadcast live, uh, the characters are saying their lines in sequence. They don't have the time to do a lot of quick shots, so, it, so editing was done live in, uh, in the uh, studio. A lot of the lines felt rushed like they were just trying to blurt it out because everything had to be so precisely timed as the camera moved and as a result the characters come off as flat as if, and they as, as if they don't have a personality uh mm. you, you compare them to like the the uh so again for listeners just to clarify why i'm not going to buzz curtis on the character seeming flat is because he gave specific details beforehand as to why yeah if I were to mention uh, juror number seven to you from Twelve Angry Men, do you, do you remember who that guy is? The guy with the baseball tickets burning a hole in his pocket. Yep. Uh, you instantly he has a, a certain way of speaking, has a specific um accent, and a way of talking to people. There's a, a specific interaction where he's having a conversation with juror number five, where they're discussing baseball, and uh, it's revealed that uh, juror number five is is a Baltimore fan, and he makes a comment like it's. Uh, being a Baltimore fan is like being beat over the head once a day. So the instant uh, thing you get is is that the Baltimores are are uh, losers. And throughout the entirety of the uh, movie, he's referring to that guy as "Okay, Baltimore." So, oh. and you don't get stuff like that with the television play. 
So and, it was interesting watching the way that it originally was yeah. broadcast and the potential benefits of having time to yeah. edit and play out the movie. Yeah, and uh, so it took like four four weeks to film. It was a very quick film, but also before filming, they were they rehearsed their lines for two weeks. And uh, director Cindy Lumet, Lumet um, had them consistently go over their uh, their lines together. Had them like dig in to get an idea of what their characters were. So okay. they had a better idea of how they would act throughout the entirety of the movie. So I'm going to say the thing that everybody listening to this might or might not already know, which is the idea behind turning 12 Angry Men into a movie is because of experimenting with the ability of a movie to rely on dialogue. Yes. That's why it's very simple. That's why they chose it to be one location. And, you know, that's why the story is so simply laid out. They have one goal. Yes. One person turns a guilty into a not guilty. That's the goal. Yep. And the whole thing is just an exploration of how to do that in dialogue. And so characters in dialogue. Dialogue, 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 yep. dialogue, dialogue. And so that was the intent behind yeah. the whole making of this. Yeah, and uh, to further strengthen that, that point, none of the characters have names throughout the entirety of, of the movie. They're referred to as their juror number or there's a nickname given. A, a lot of the editing in the movie itself, about, I want to say about 50% of it happens towards the end of the uh, film. Where at the start of, of the film, you have these like long takes where it's it's intentionally contemplative. Where uh, in, in in the beginning, there's there's not a whole lot of, conf, um, of uh, confrontation. As the uh, jurors start to fraction off, and uh, the drama increases, the takes become quicker and faster. And typically, when a juror switches his vote from a guilty to a, to a not guilty, the camera focuses on that one juror. Maybe you'll get a, a second juror in the frame as well, but it's focusing on them. Another thing that, that highlights this is at, right at the moment where uh, it becomes a six to six uh, tie is when the storm starts to fall down, signifying, I, I, I want to say, like the internal breakup of the group. And this is all happening on what is the hottest day of the year. Can I kind of reflect the, the, the uh, temperament of the 12 men? Storms in movies? Yeah, I, I, I feel like you can take your own interpretation off of that. Mm. Um, and I, then I, So then I feel like it's subjective, but you did say it was subjective. Mm-hmm. But, and then you did explain why, so that's fair. Yeah. But typically, it's the threat of conflict. So that fits too, though. The way that I would say it is, once you have two split even sides, a storm is going to see. This is what I was actually trying to say. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, So, okay. There we go. Then we agree. (laughs) And if you disagree with us, that's okay. Yeah. Because that's the point. And then there's this. uh, I'm 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 not going to go into it in too much detail here, but there's this. uh, Guy on YouTube, I want to say his channel is uh, called uh, Counterpoint or Counterargument. One of those two. I think it's Counterargument. Where he has a five-episode uh, series on 12 Angry Men as a case study on how to uh, have a civil debate and the do's and don'ts within the confines of that kind of uh, event. See how that goes. But yeah, uh, the two main characters of 12 Angry Men would be juror number eight, juror number three. The person who's the strongest pr- proponent for a guilty verdict and the person who's the strongest pr- proponent for a not guilty verdict. One, juror number eight, is a very soft-spoken person. He doesn't really voice any disagreements with someone who's challenging 
his arguments. I he sort of proposes the position of how to approach looking at the details yeah. they've been giving and questions the sort of judgmental nature of looking at it. Well, this yeah. is a very good movie to yeah. reflect the point of this podcast. So this is very interesting. So he's someone who approaches the situation simply adding doubt. Yeah. Uh, he himself is not sure. Even when it's it's a 9 to 3, mm-hmm. he still says that we're not sure, but we have a reasonable doubt now. That's... And- that's the key. So it shows the power of not challenging someone, but questioning. Yeah. Now, just suppose him with juror number three, who challenges every single person who... Tries to assert everything that he says as fact. Yeah. Like, he's the prime example of how, of how not to approach a, a, a debate or, or a, or a uh, critical conversation. Now, I can't uh, criticize the movie for this, but there is something about juror number three that I want to bring up because I feel like people tend to lean on it and it's become sort of a trope. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it has become defined as a trope, this breakdown of events. Character has very strong opinion. Character gets angry about strong opinion. Character emotionally breaks down about said strong opinion because you realize they had a personal bias and they never really believed that all along. Like, the most egregious and uncomfortable example of this was God's Not Dead. Mm. Nobody considers the concept that an atheist is terrified by the idea of living forever, Mm -hmm. existentially, to the point that it causes anxiety and they can't function. So the idea of a religion, period, where their life lives on forever, Mm. will never give them comfort in life. Okay. Yeah. If a character overtly believes something is true against all odds, well, they don't really believe it. Okay, and I I, I want to go back to to the characters themselves because a lot of uh, detail was uh, painstakingly put into so not, not only the characters' backstory but how they're dressed. I I, I mentioned before Jerem number seven how he has a how he has a burning baseball tickets in his uh, pocket. He's a his uh, profession in the movie is he's a salesman and he kind of has this kind of witty, fast talking, uh, jokey kind of per- um, uh, personality and the. It's hard to say that his attire kind of brings it across, but in, in, in a weird way it does. A better example really would be juror number one, who uh, on the outset looks like he's a very athletic person. He's wearing a, a short sleeve polo shirt with, with a tie. He's the one who is uh, taking charge of the, uh, of the, uh, the jurors, and uh, he's, he's the foreman, essentially, of, of the room. You later learn that he is the assistant head coach of a football team in the uh, movie, which gives a uh, weight to why he acts the way he does. Henry Fonda's character is an architect, so he has this kind of way of looking at things and how they should function and whether they hold weight or not. So he mm. works in that sense. Uh, and all these characters have the have those little details yeah. sprinkled in throughout the entirety of the movie. Like enough to characterize them. Yeah. Then mm. just a little thing that I want to point out. It's interesting to me that you don't have to give too much of a backstory to these characters because you wouldn't in a jury. That's true to life. That is true to life. So, anyways, like this has nothing to do with. Well, this has something to do with 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 the movie. So, like this, so all the actors that that take place. I think the two biggest actors in the movie are are Lee J. Cobb and uh, Henry Fonda. They were the biggest names going, and the biggest one being Hen- uh, uh, 
Henry Fonda. He was the one that they kind of exploited to try and get the name out there. Uh, but you see a lot of uh, actors in here who, for most people, they would have recognized them from other movies, but they got their start here. One in particular, juror number two, played by, I want to say his name is uh, John Fiddler, is the original voice of Piglet from the mini, from the mini Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. One of the th- and it's oh I can th- hear that now. <laughs> it it was hard for me not to hear it when I first saw this in uh, high school. It was like oh that's Piglet. The uh, critical and box office performances of this movie it, critically it did well with the uh, critics. It bombed in the box office. It was not a box office success. Uh, no one went to go see it. And uh, wow, United Artists was going to use this as a way to like uh, boast uh, to a uh, bolster. Their reputation as someone as as a company that does uh, art movies, mm-hmm. and this was going to be their jumping off point. And because it didn't make the money that they thought it would, they uh, couldn't. It did well overseas, just okay. it didn't do well in, in the states. And they made enough money back to like break even, but they didn't make a profit off of it yet. Can't finish. So, Twelve Angry Men is always a movie that I go to when I want to look at writing. Adventures of Tintin is a movie that I will always go to when I want to escape to a place of adventure, and I'm not sure which direction I want to go. (laughs) Iron Man is always going to be the place that I want to go to when I want to think about what makes a real person a superhero. And The Dead Don't Die is always going to be a safe place to go to where you can experience something insecure in a very calm way. Yeah, I tend to go to 12 Angry Men... When I want something that is uh, simple but powerful. Say that. So, thank you for this episode. Please come back and we'll keep trying to entertain you. Uh, I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. You can find me on Twitter at HighContrastFLM. You can find me on Twitter at 90sGamer.com. And uh, I recently changed my Twitch name. It's now Merrick underscore Tainment. M-A-R-I-C underscore Tainment. Yep. Taint. Mint. Taint and mints. A minty taint. Thank you all for listening. Again, we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, so if you want to have more people talk about minty taints to you, you can go check out anything over there on the MusicCityDriveIn.com, and we will see you all next time.